Good morning, good morning, good morning. How are we today? There are four people in here. How is everybody else doing? Okay, sort of okay. Some people are excited. Okay, some people you're forced to be here. That's tough energy. Sorry about that. I, my name is Isaac. She prayed over Mr. Wilson. That's my dad. I hope he's doing well as well. Uh, but my name's Isaac. I've been a pastor for the last 10 years in Osborne. Some of you know Wyatt Davis. Uh, he was a youth pastor there and has now taken over that church and has done incredible things, continues to do incredible things in that place. I'm now in Hayes, America, which is an odd place to be. I uh, never thought that I would go to Hayes. I always said I would stay away from that place, and it's funny how God moves you into those places where you don't feel comfortable. And so for me this morning, I wanted to share about some things that God has been putting on my heart, but I know I've been in your seat. I've been in your place. I've, I've come from that, that college realm into life and what that begins to look like. And so many of us are, are waiting and just when is God going to show up? When is that actually going to happen in my life? I've heard about it. I've read about it through scripture. And now something is on the horizon and something is going to change. But I just want to before I get into all of that, there's a few things that you might need to know about me. I, I just finished the master's program here. Uh, I'm the kind of person, though, who likes to put the videos on times two. Is there anybody else in the room who's a times two person? I will warn you, I'm the physical embodiment of times two, so listen fast and uh, try to keep up. If I start to see people kind of doze, and I may go back over the point, but otherwise, listen fast. The Holy Spirit moves at a pace that sometimes is uncomfortable for us to understand. Sometimes in our life we think we're going to just, we're going to get it. And some of you may be a people who got it your whole life. I, I tend to really, really like whenever I understand things. And I really resist those moments where I don't understand something. But in the Hebrew culture, there's this term that they use. And they love this unknowing. Because it means God might reveal something to me yet. It means I don't know everything yet, and I'm going to find out something new. Today, I hope that that happens for you, that you begin a wrestling, that you begin something that you don't fully understand, and it becomes alive in you like a fire, and you can't understand why it's happening, or you can't understand where it's going, but that God would reveal throughout the rest of your life what that fire is meant to do, where it's supposed to go. God lit this fire inside of me, and I, I played college basketball, not very well. I ran cross country a little better than I played basketball. I've won a national championship. I've been on the stages of life's highest moments, and the reality for me is that there was fire there. But it's not the same fire that you find in the love of Christ. There's a different fire that gets lit, and man, it's just unquenchable. It starts to take over everything around you. I don't know if you found that yet. By some of you, this is certainly not the place that you're pumped up to be here, right? Some of you may have been cheering for the Chiefs game, and when I asked the question, how are you today, I also asked the question, how were you in the Chiefs win? How were you in your class this morning that maybe you already had? How were you as a father? How were you as a son to your father, as a daughter to your father? How were you in those moments? And today, I, I'm going to teach a lot of different things about Scripture. But they all have to be applied through your decision. Scripture is left, and it's been unchanged inside this book for so many years. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? 
What has the Holy Spirit been revealing to you, been challenging you to do? Where are you called to go, and how are you going to make that happen? What bedrock are you sleeping in right now that's allowing you to do it? How seriously are you taking your coursework in order to achieve what God has put in front of you? It's a hard question for 11 o'clock in the morning. The harder question if we haven't got to 11 o'clock yet, right? We're still only at 1025. And in the next 22 to 25 minutes, I'm going to share what God has. And then you're going to go on about the rest of your day. Or maybe what you hear would stop and you would pause. As we begin to study the word today, um, 1 Samuel chapter 14 is where we're going to dive into. And I know that you guys have been studying out of Colossians chapter 1 in this series. And it says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things of heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and him all things are held together. That's who we serve. That's the God that we serve. For many of you, you may not know this about me, I have a speech impediment. There are certain words that I still avoid in scripture to this day, and the irony of our God is that he would raise up somebody who struggles to speak and do that for the rest of your life. What things in your life, what weaknesses do you feel like are not supposed to be there? I still make fun or joke with my parents that they didn't put me into speech therapy. And now this is what God would do. And for the rest of my life, I get to work on different things. Like the sound that a lion makes, I, don't, I can't say that word. I avoid it like the plague. If somebody else says it, I can regurgitate it. And in my life, I've recognized when the Holy Spirit goes before me, it's time to begin the regurgitation of that, right? The embodiment of it. So as you see this person of Jesus Christ, it becomes that moment in your life where you want to walk towards that. Why do we avoid sin? Why do we avoid, well, we got these 10 reasons, right? We've got the 10 commandments. Yeah, those are great. But the embodiment of Jesus Christ compels us to walk towards him. As we see the way that he interacted with the world, it compels us to regurgitate that action towards others, to begin to model that towards others. In Genesis, we see the story of forgiveness. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It would have been one that all of the young Hebrew people would have memorized. And throughout the entirety of Genesis, we remember forgiveness. We remember this story that God is good. He created us in goodness, and the people of God are trying their hardest to trust that story. Do you feel that tension this morning? The, the idea that God is good. Can we trust that again? And it's going to be a tension you're going to wrestle with for the rest of your life. I'm confident of it. I talked with my grandma before she passed away, and she still wrestles with that tension. She knows that he's good. She knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's love. But when you see hardship in your life, in Genesis, it's no different. God is for us and he's for others. And then becomes this book of Exodus where God rescues his people, the small tribe of Israel. Then we go into Leviticus where a kingdom of priesthood, all of the other kingdoms have a single leader and this person, it's not supposed to be that way. We want a kingdom of priesthood. We want the representation of the Ark of the Covenant leading us into battle. We are different than other nations. We are building this around a God of the universe, not around a person, not around the way that other kingdoms do things. Then numbers were tested in that. Then Deuteronomy were called back to the remembering in Exodus. Then comes the story of Joshua and great conquest. We remember 
Judges, and even a few weeks ago, maybe even a couple days ago, you learned about the study of Ruth and the stories of people who still remembered. They did exactly what was called to them. They kept the corners of their fields that they didn't harvest. There were people who were trying to embody and regurgitate what it looked like to be a follower of God. They were doing it. And then we come to the section that I'm going to teach on this morning in 1 Samuel. And I would tell you right now that if you put it out on a table all of my knowledge of the Bible, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings are like the smallest little bit on that table. And I don't know why my wife is the opposite. And it's hilarious how God puts you with somebody who is opposite. So today I brought her Bible because it's highlighted differently than mine. She covers my weaknesses. She leads me into places that I wouldn't otherwise go. And so in that moment of being married, you realize, huh, even though she looks at the world differently, she has a different lens than me, it offers a perspective, a great diversity to me that I can then experience the world in a different way today. As we consider the ways that we look at the world, I challenge you to bring that into your life in every aspect. Think about your dating relationships and the way that they impact the way that you interact with God. What a great call. 1 Samuel chapter 14, though, you, you learn about this guy named Saul. So who is Saul? I thought we weren't supposed to have a king. I thought we were supposed to be a kingdom of priesthood. It all changed, right? And this is where it gets into how you raise your kids. Because Eli's kids were not good in the priesthood. So the people came to Samuel and said, hey, could you find us a leader? And so Samuel's trying to figure out what to do. And if you understand some of the Hebrew in this, it begins to be really, really funny, right? It begins to be almost hilarious. Because the guy who gets picked is so different than what the people would want. Saul. You know why he shows up at Samuel's house? Do any of you remember the story? He's lost his donkeys. <laughs> he can't even shepherd donkeys well. But the irony of that is in some ways God is, he's showing the Israelite people, you don't, you're not ready for a shepherd of sheep yet. You still need the shepherd for the donkey. Man, Saul is this guy. He's a head taller than everybody else. He looks the part. He fits the part. And Samuel says, this is going to be the guy that leads you. And even Jeremiah said that you need to consider this person. And, and he likens it to this Asherah bush in the desert. It's a strong, powerful thing. And Saul is chosen to lead the people of Israel. And he doesn't do a great job at it. He doesn't do perfectly. And later then you, you find David, right? David becomes this king, and that's what's going to happen. We're not going to get all the way to David today, but many of you know him. He had a slingshot. He knocked out the, some people. Okay, just a, just a king, just a person you should probably know. As we think about 1 Samuel chapter 14, we have to know all of this stuff. We've got to really know the information to be able to move forward in faith. Now, the Holy Spirit's going to teach us all sorts of things, but if you don't know what Jesus looks like, how do you know whether to embody it? If you don't know what the Father's love looks like, if you don't know the story of how we got to this place, how can you leverage that for anything? As you consider your study, I challenge you in that to leverage it, to know it. So I just want to begin with reading this. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Today, Maybe that would be true. And the response of the man that, that this guy was talking to said this, do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead of you. I am with you, heart and soul. What an interesting story. As we've gotten all the way through Saul, then there's this 
There's this break before we get into David. How is Saul doing in raising his family? How are the young men who are coming up under Saul, how are they doing? The answer is that the kingdom is being spread apart. They're being persecuted by the Philistines. The Philistines are landing into their areas. And there's, there's things that we have to recognize in our lives the same way. The Philistines may be surrounding your camp. They may be coming down and pushing you on all sides and you may not be understanding everything that God is about to do. And Jonathan, who is Samuel's son, changes the narrative of who God is. He sees who God is and transforms his interactions with all of the Israelite people and the way they interact with God in a single moment. Let's study that together. That's where we're going. That's the vision of where we're headed, is what caused this man to be willing to take a step and say, I'm going to go forward. Revelations chapter 12, verses 10 through 11 say this. Then I heard a loud voice in the heavens saying, now, now have come the salvation and the people, and the kingdom of God, and all the authorities, and his anointed ones, for the accusing of his brothers and sisters, the one who accuses them before the God of night, has been thrown out. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives, even in the face of death. Does that sound like Christians today? They overcame whatever it is, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even in the face of death. Jonathan has not read Revelations yet. He is simply the son of Saul. And yet his faith propels him to this place. So as we buckle in, and as we get ready to study the word of God, where are you at in your faith? Can we do a litmus test? Where are we in our faith? Are we the kind of person who would be willing to trust God in the midst of anything? Or are we the kind of person who kind of puts our faith on the side and we recognize what it kind of looks like, but it's also inconvenienced, right? Can we just admit that today, that our faith inconveniences us on the path to earthly wealth? It inconveniences us in the way that we pursue the American dream. It inconveniences us in the way that we drive down the highway, in the way that we interact with our friends, in our dating relationships. There's parts about it that seem inconvenient. It would be easier to do it another way. How fun is it to write a 10% tithe check? <laughs> I love giving my money away, right? That's inconvenient on your, your dreams of becoming the perfect American. It is counter to that. And Jesus said, yeah, remember who my father is. And as we remember who the father is, he said, you remember Leviticus. You weren't supposed to look like everybody else. You weren't supposed to be a kingdom like everybody else. You're supposed to act differently. Your time is supposed to be different. Your money is supposed to be different. Your interactions with my people are supposed to be different. Today, we are called into a different kind of life. And as everybody in Saul's camp is sitting there, being okay with the fact that they have nothing, the Philistines have taken away every sharp object from them. They've taken away their swords. They've taken away their spears. They've taken away any blacksmith material. And they're unable to even forge the simplest tools that allow them to get their jobs done and plow the fields. So they have to go into the Philistine encampments in order to even sharpen their tools. And they're living under this oppression. And they're just okay with it. 
That's where we find ourselves in this story. But as we read it out of 1 Samuel, I think that there's a thing that that us as Christians, we just get comfortable with that. The world tells us we're supposed to interact with certain groups of people a certain way, and so we just do. The world tells us that we're supposed to interact with this thing, this way, in this box, and we just do it. How many Jonathans are left out there? How many people of faith are left out there who would blaze the trail behind Jesus? Saul and his son Jonathan, verse 16, 1 Samuel Chapter 13, verse 16, Saul and his son Jonathan and all of his men with them were staying in Gibeon and Benjamin when the Philistines camped outside Midka. So we're going to put up a map that's going to be up there now. And maybe this has never made sense to you before. Maybe this picture will help. Maybe it won't. Raiding parties went out from Mishka and they went into the Philistine camps in three different detachments. One of them turned to Orphan, the vicinity of Shal, another one towards Beth Horel, and another one at the border overlooking the valley of Bethlehem and facing the desert. So you see the green arrows. That's where they camped at Mitzrash, and they moved in the three different directions. And then you see in this area, in Gibeon of Benjamin, that's where the Israelites are encamped. That's where Saul is, is currently at in this process. Otherwise, the Hebrews... And then it says in verse 19, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the, Israelite, because the Philistines had said to them, otherwise the Hebrews would make swords and spears. So all Israel and Hebrew, so all of the Israelites went down to Philistine encampments to have their plowshares, max, their axe and sickle sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening the plow spears. And the, in, in other words, they're, they're under this oppression they're in this scary environment, and the Philistines are a real problem. Now, one of the detachments of the Philistines had gone out and passed Midka. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, let's go over to that Philistine outpost on the other side, but he didn't tell anybody else or his father. Saul was staying at the outskirts of Gibeon under the, under the pomegranate tree at Midgron when there were about 600 men among them. So this gives us the size of the Israelite army. The Philistine army is probably three to four times that number. There's a small little encampment that's existing. And right where you see this Behez and Sinith with the orange line kind of underneath it, that's where he's going to end up going. He's going to head that direction, Jonathan is. No one was aware that Jonathan had left, verse 4. On the other side, Jonathan intended to cross and reach out to the Philistine outpost, but there was a cliff called Boaz. And there's another picture here. This is as close as we can understand, and uh, biblical scholars believe this is the actual valley that they crossed over. So he's standing on one side of this, and this is what's standing between this army. And on the top of the encampment over there on the right, that's where the Philistine outpost would have been, on the other side of this valley. Jonathan said to his young, era, uh, young armor bearer, come, let's go out to the outpost and those uncircumcised fellows, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can stop the Lord, whether saving many or saving few. The armor bearer responded, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan then said, come then, let's cross over towards the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we'll stay there and we will not go up. But if they say to us, come, we will climb up because we have our sign that the Lord has given them into your hand. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, the Philistine said, the Hebrew men are crawling out of their outpost, shouting to Jan Jonathan and the armor bearer, come up and we'll teach you a lesson. Right? 
As we go a couple slides forward, I imagine it to be a pretty similar to this kind of moment. For some of you who've seen the movie, this is honestly one of those moments where we look around and we go, why did Jonathan do this? Why would Jonathan not just go up? Why in the story of Jericho did the people have to march around? Why does God always move in this same kind of fashion? Why can't he just go in, send a meteorite down, take those people out? Jonathan goes up there, holds his sword and says, huzzah, and we move forward. It's not how God operated. Jonathan made this little space before he climbed up. He wanted to know, is God in this or not? Let me ask you today, how many times in your life have you made a pause to find out if God is in it or not? Some of us are real good at calling our friends, right? We'll do the Jonathan thing. We hear the Spirit of God calling us to move. We put it through our strainer of Scripture. It looks like Jesus. Man, it feels like Jesus. Hang on, buddy. Is that actually what he's saying? Is that actually where we're supposed to go? Okay, I can take a step. Then do we go or do we pause and go, okay, God, are you in this? Is this really where I'm supposed to go? Is this really what I'm supposed to do? As we put our lives through the strainer of Scripture, are we willing to take a pause or do we just get in a hurry? In your dating relationship, have you taken a pause yet? In your relationships with your parents, they may be fractured, they may be harmful, they may be hurting. I don't know what's going on there. Have you taken a pause yet and say, God, why was I given to this family? You could have picked any family in history, and this is the family that I've been giving to. Why? Or are we so right? Are we so indignant? Are we so prideful that we look at that relationship and go, I'm not my brother's keeper. They can make their decisions and they'll figure it out. Or has God called us into something different? Is it time to climb a mountain on the other side? Does it feel like that ravine is there in your relationships and it's time to make a difference? I don't know. But there's three things that I want to summarize that, that I think Jonathan did really well. In verse 6, he expected God to move. Perhaps, perhaps what we're doing right here, right now, is in God's plan and he might move. He might light a fire. That might be something worth going to. Jonathan was then encouraged by a friend. Do you have that opportunity in your life? Man, whenever you think about early Methodism and the, the ability for it to sweep across the country, there were these things called bands, little small groups of people who did life together. They leaned on each other, and in the midst of trial and tribulation, they would lean harder into each other as opposed to leaning into the comforts of the world. Where are you leaning? Are you about to fall over because you don't have that brother standing beside you who's going to push you? My wife has got the sharpest elbows. And you know what's crazy? I kind of prayed for that. I prayed for God. Would you just, is there a strong woman out there who could help me, who could guide me, who could continue to love my kids and raise my kids and continue to serve you despite all of that? And you know what I got was this woman who is fierce. <laughs> and I need that in my life. She fiercely loves the Lord. She fiercely loves my son. And she fiercely loves me. And sometimes that love, it, it helps me and it guides me. And sometimes, man, does it make me mad. It's hard to be corrected. It's hard to be told I need to go into this thing. It's hard that I need to move this way. 
I remember for me, the biggest time in my life where I had this happen, I was running cross country and I just won a national championship and I moved schools and I went to this different college. It didn't even have running. This basketball coach came up to me and said, hey, I'm thinking that we might start a cross country program. Are you interested in helping with this? And I said, you know, I've, I've really given up running in my life. I've, I found out it's not something that I enjoy doing. And he said, can you lead men for me? What? I thought you wanted me to run. He said, I don't care. You're going to figure out the running. It's going to just happen. But are you willing to actually pour into these guys? I've got these guys that they, they really need some, some interaction. What can we do? To this day, those are my guys. Before, when, when Zach emailed me and said, hey, would you be willing to come speak? The first thing I did was I put it out to my guys. Hey, what do you guys think about this? Can you start praying about this? Can you start praying for the people who are going to be in that place? Is this something that seems like this is in line? And so then you got to take off the day from work. you got to figure out all of your life. Your son's daycare gets canceled, so you bring him with you. You figure it out because you know without a doubt that this is where you're supposed to be walking, that the Holy Spirit has set apart a time and a place such as this for you right now. And some of us, we never get there. This, this man... He was probably 350 pounds, never ran cross country in his life, didn't know anything about running. He said, these guys, a couple of them were cut from the soccer team. A couple of them had run well in high school and didn't have a way to get connected. They didn't have a way to, to get friends. And he was making a space. I didn't see it. He was making a space for the Holy Spirit to work in somebody's life. He passed away a few years ago, and, and it's hard whenever you lose somebody in your life, and it begins to put things into perspective about the opportunities that have been missed in your life to begin walking, to begin heading on that path. I don't know what opportunities you're missing or, or what things you're struggling to make space for. Some of the most successful people in the world, though, in Seven Hi Habits of Highly Effective People, they, they talk about this strategy of keeping things in its box, compartmentalization. Man, we're good at that with church, aren't we? Take my little box, carve out my little time. Those of us who play basketball, we carved out a lot of time, right? Basketball existed on that court, but it also, it was all the time. We're watching game film, we're spending time in study, and then we're going and we're talking about it, and then we're going playing video games and doing that, and all of a sudden the compartmentalization of basketball starts to slip out of everything else that we do. It starts to become who you are. Can Christianity for you become that? Can Jesus get out of his box for a moment and start to trickle down into every relationship, every interaction, everything that you do? What kind of interaction would it take in your life with the Holy Spirit for that to become possible? What kind of mountain is he challenging you to climb up? What kind of armor bearer is going to follow you into that silliness? One of the things that I miss now that I'm in my 30s, probably more than anything else, is the old country cruise, right? Just... With your high school buddies, you're never going to get those days back. You're never going to be able to have that opportunity again. I don't even like driving that much. I just like being the I'm with you heart and soul. You think we can jump that? <laughs> I don't know. We're going to find out. Let's just see what happens, right? And you do silliness that you don't want your dad to find out about. Jonathan is in that place with this story. It's one of those moments. He's not really sure I want my dad to know about this. Are you with me? Can we go? I don't know in your life where you're making space, though, and where you're pausing. But the last thing was then he experienced the power of God overcome him, and he's able to attack with a force that he'd never had before. And a small young man, an armor bearer, is capable 
of winning in battle. Later on, we're going to find out that David, the, the youngest of all of these other siblings, is picked. His humility, probably between 9 and 10 years old, some believe younger, some believe slightly older. This young kid is that you're going to be the ruler of this land. The Holy Spirit has now invited you into the same kind of promise that David had, the same kind of opportunity through the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been welcomed into a kingship. It says in scripture, you've been welcomed into the family of God, heirs to the throne of grace. And we use that to scroll TikTok. (laughs) And we use that power and authority to be able to feel like, ah, things are going to be okay. What a wasted opportunity we have if that's the best thing that we can do with the heirship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we would spend our time fighting. We would spend our time what? Let me challenge you today, challenge you again with all that God has. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, then there were 11 disciples and they went out of Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, where they worshiped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came to them with all authority, and heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. So here becomes the greatest theological question in this scripture. Is Jesus the armor bearer for us? Or am I the armor bearer for Jesus? I don't know if I have enough time to study that with you today. I don't know if we have enough time to unravel all of that. But let me ask that to you. Is Jesus your armor bearer? Would he go in the places when he says, hey, I'm about to go up the mountain. Jesus says, I'm with you, heart and soul. Let's go do this. Or is it the flip of that? And you see Jesus going up the mountain and go, I'm with you, heart and soul. Brothers and sisters, the best answer that I have for you today is I think it's both of those things. I really believe that. I think there's moments where it's Jesus who's truly walking in front of us and the embodiment of Jesus. And I'm with him heart and soul. Then there's other times he says, it's now for you to move forward. He goes on and he teaches in John chapter 14. It says, Philip said to the Lord, show us the Father that this would be enough for us. Just give us a little glimpse of what would be enough for me. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after everything we've been through among this entire lifetime, anyone who has seen you has seen the Father. If they've seen me, they've seen Jesus, they've seen the Father. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father? What did they kill Jesus for? The blasphemy that finally, that finally was enough said, I am, I am the I am, I I am. And today we would grab hold of a similar promise that he has made us sons and daughters of the king. And whatever promises are held inside of that new title, what authority has been given to you to go out and act? Living and doing his work. Verse 11, believe. (laughs) What evidence do you need today, church? What evidence do we need of the Holy Spirit moving? I have this weird evidence that I have to have. 
I've got these weird hands, and they're always hot, and they're always sweaty. And there was a moment for me at Point Loma at a church camp when my hands went ice cold, and I experienced the presence of God, and I said, okay, God, if the, if the ice cold nature of my hands ever leaves, I'm done preaching. I'm done sharing the word of God, but as long as that follows me, as long as that's with me, I will press on into your kingship. I will follow you to the ends of the earth. And so today, my son, as I'm holding him, he tries to pull away from my hands, and he says, cold. My hands. The things that will do God's work. What is it for you? What's the experience you've had with God that's so real, so evident in your life that no matter the moment, no matter the call on your life, you would go, I'll walk up the mountain, I'll climb the cliff. I don't care how high it is. I don't care what's going on. I don't know how many people are on the other side of that, but I'm going to go chop them down in the name of Jesus. I'm going to go and take the spirit where he's called me to be today. Don't miss what the Holy Spirit's doing. I tell you the truth, anyone has faith in me will do even greater things than these because what I'm doing is simply the Father's will and you will do whatever in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. We're here today to do that. I can stand up here unequivocally commanding you in the name of Jesus to work on your faith, to stand in your faith. Let me tell you it begins with understanding. You ever thought about the word understanding? You're understanding what I'm actually knowing is what I'm understanding today, church. If you don't understand the word of God, you can't stand under it. Know it. Put it inside your veins. Dedicate it to memory. Memorize it. Share it with your friends. Converse about it. Go home and talk about today. Are you the armor bearer of Jesus or is Jesus your armor bearer? Wrestle with that. In the wrestling comes understanding, and in understanding comes action. We are a body of people who act in the name of Jesus. We must be people who do the work of God. Let me pray over you. You'll be dismissed after the prayer to worship. You'll be dismissed to pray. You'll be dismissed to wrestle. You'll be dismissed to go back and act like this never happened. That's between you and Jesus. Know this. That from the moment I found out about this, I'm with you, heart and soul. I'm with you, heart and soul. Whatever things you want to accomplish in this world, I'm with you, heart and soul. Reach out, I'll pray for you. You have a a pastor on campus who is with you, heart and soul. You have teachers in this place who are with you, heart and soul. If you don't feel that today, if you have not experienced that, reach out. There are people who love the Lord enough to be with you heart and soul. That may not be the story of your family. That may not be the story of your friends. That may not be the story of the things that have happened to you to get to this place. And I'm not minimizing those. I'm providing you with the promise of scripture that Jesus would never leave you, never forsake you. Please know I'm with you heart and soul. And if you're a Christian, you're in the same battle as me, pick up your sword. Knock off the foolishness of your childhood years and pick up your sword because we need it. 
When people tell me I go to Hayes to plant a church, guess what? It's 78% Catholic. Oh, that's a little scary. Guess what? Only 11% of people claim to be Methodist. Oh, that's a little scary. But you know what? 60% of people don't have an active faith. They need the love of Jesus Christ around you. And when my armor bearers say, we're with you heart and soul. And when people come into that, it's time to move forward. If you hear nothing else today, there are people in this place who will be with you for your life, heart, and soul. Find them. Knock off the kid stuff. It's time to walk into a faith that's real. Let's pray together. In Jesus, we have all we need. Father, we thank you for sending him to die on the cross for me, for my sins, and for my transgressions, of which there are many. I'm the chief of sinners, and yet you have loved me enough to set me apart. Not because of something that I've done, but because of what your son did so long ago. I've been washed clean. And Father, today, there are people in this place who need that. They need that washing. I pray for an armor bearer to come alongside them, for a teacher, an opportunity who made space. Father, for a conversation. Let us be people who make space for the conversations of you. Let us be people who make space for you to move in our lives. Father, we pray for fire. We pray for sincerity and authenticity in people's lives. Father, that they would stop being kids and that they would move and grab a hold of the sword. And Father, with that comes a responsibility to run after you. Not that we wouldn't sin so that, so that grace may abound, but Father, so we wouldn't sin so we would know more of you, so you can be more present in our lives and that you would take the place of that sin, not just in, in action, but Father, in everyday action. Father, I pray that over the people today hearing this message, that maybe they've never understood how, how challenging it is to follow you and they've caught a glimpse of what it looks like. But Father, how simple it is as well. I can't do it by myself. I need your son. I need an armor bearer. Father, continue to send me armor bearers. And I'm humbled again by your love that you would send people who would come alongside me. And Father, they would raise me up. They would give me the confidence to run into battle. Let it still be so today in the church in America. Let there be armor bearers who would come alongside and say, that's what you have in your heart. Let's go after it. In the name of Jesus, let's go after it. Father, I thank you for each of these kids who've made space to come to Central Christian College, who've taken a pause in their life to come and study and gain more understanding. And Father, for a standing under that, that would be so powerful that we could move. Father, we love you. And we hear the stories of what goes on at Asbury and we hear the stories of what goes on in your church and the revivals in the 70s and 80s. And Father, the desire that we have to see young men and women standing under faith. Father, I'm so thankful for Wyatt and his willingness to be an armor bearer and to take on all of the challenges. And Father, that you would raise him up. I pray for, for people to be surrounding Wyatt in his leadership in Osborne. I pray for people to surround Zach in his leadership of the campus. Father, I pray for people to come around the, the leaders on this campus and be armor bearers. Father, I pray for the students to learn what it is to bear the armor of someone running in in faith. Father, we love you. We make space for you. And we expect you to move. It's in your son's name we pray. And all of God's people said.